0: And, uh, Can I please have your attention? Can you dig it? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, so, uh, I've got one week under the belt in here in now beautiful Maine. The heat wave is over. It was actually al- almost chilly this morning, which was truly glorious. Um, I can't tell you how off I f- off my feed I was with that heat wave here because the air conditioning at this house is just not adequate to my needs when it's crazy hot, and I don't function well in crazy hot. Which is why I can never live any place tropical. Um, I can visit someplace tropical and. Um, and I could stay someplace luxurious for a little while, someplace tropical. But, um, as I often say, I am descended from a desert people, but we like a dry heat and, um, I'm just not up to just constant schwitzing. So, um, I was also here alone for several days because my wife, the fair Jessica took my sister-in-law and my daughter. And, uh, my nieces and nephews, or some of them, I've got a lot of nieces and nephews, um, and took them up to Bar Harbor for an adventure for a few days. And so I was without a car with these dogs and, um, we were all going a little stir crazy. It was very, very funny. I'm not sure I could convey it. Um, how funny it was, but like the first morning after they were gone, you know, these dogs are used to going on morning adventures in the car with me. And they're all excited and they're jumping up and down, you know, and it's like a quarter to six in the morning, and they're full of this, you know, twirling, twirling, always twirling, um, energy. And Zoe's a rooing at me, hurry up, let's go, we gotta go, there are things to do. And then I open the front door of this this house we're staying in, and she runs out and runs right to where she expects to get in the car. And then she's like, wait a second. There's no car. What the? And then just a string of expletives, um you know, translated from doggy, uh, ran out of her. She was pissed. And she just was like looking at me, looking at the air where the car was supposed to be. And it's like, what are we going to do about this? Because they get bored walking around just here, particularly because I, I have to put Zoe on a leash when I walk her, Zoe on a leash when I walk her around here. Um, in part because she loves to investigate people's backyards and people's front yards and look for um, groundhogs and whatnot. But also there's, I think kind of outrageously and grotesquely, barbed wire in some of the woods around here, like in the middle of the woods. And um, she's not used to avoiding barbed wire. So I just have to have her on a, a leash. I don't have to have Pippa on a leash because Pippa's, um, <laughs> she's scared of everybody and, um, and controllable um uh just by me telling her don't go over there anyway um so uh, wife is back my daughter had to go to dc for a while but she'll be back when she comes back she'll bring the cat so the whole goldberg clan will be here and uh so the thing yeah so it's funny on i i i mentioned this on the dispatch podcast yesterday with david and sarah um wrote my la times column on monday about how um, after about 10 days of really, you know, sort of the it was probably the best week, two-week cycle of the entire Biden presidency, um, where just a whole bunch of things seemed to be going his way. Um, there was a massive jobs report that lent a lot of credence to the claim that while we may be in a technical recession, this is not your typical recession. Um, and that this economy is doing much better than the word recession would imply. Um, I, I'm still a big critic of how Biden initially handled that stupid debate about is it a recession or is it not a recession? But um, a massive, massive jobs report is a good thing regardless. They got this, you know, uh, they got a deal on this inflation reduction act. Again, I disagree with the messaging and a lot of the context, but it was content, but it was a big political win. Uh they got rid of um Iman al-Zahiri. Um and you can just go down uh you know a list. They had some other legislative accomplishments. The CHIP Act passed. Um Republicans took it in on took it on the neck or in the neck on the um the debate about helping veterans. And it really just sort of seemed like there was a bit of a vibe shift in favor of the Democrats. And the lead of the column, you know, for my LA Times column was something like um you want to know why they say x is a long time in politics well take a look at the last 2 weeks um because you know the entire mood seemed to have shifted in terms of political analysis about the democrats fortunes it looks like and i think it still looks like the the senate is definitely in play for the democrats it's it's not a lock um and uh and at least for the last 2 weeks people weren't talking about how biden isn't up to the job or that he may not run again and all that kind of stuff i mean they just really did seem to turn things around, um, and it seemed really, really sudden. And then, the you know, literally the next morning, or, or even really that night after I had filed, we get the the lago search thing, and the vibe shifted in a completely different way. So much so that I had to write a whole new column about that because my L.A. Times column um, becomes my syndicated column, and i often I'll either fix stuff or 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 tweak stuff or 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 write a new one if I have to if it's overtaken by events and then it becomes um, my syndicated column and uh, you know and so the LA Times has a 24-hour exclusive on the column I write for them this is all the benefit of being complicated without being interesting so I'll stop talking about it and um, and all of a sudden like that whole mood that dominated you know the political uh you know conversation on over the weekend and on a monday just completely (laughs) disintegrated in the wake of this you know set your hair on fire uh craziness that we've seen over the last few days um with people saying how this is this is a guarantees that trump is the nominee and that you know um, this is going to get him elected and this is spells the end for the Democrats to, you know, all sorts of other wacky things. And, um, and so I don't know where this thing is going to play out next, but I, for all I know, by the time I hit stop on the record button here, we're going to find out what was actually taken from Trump's, uh, you know, home, the press conference was yesterday and, you know, there's all these reports this morning that say it was a, um, that there were these specific and very special nuclear documents or nuclear documents related to nuclear, you know, assets that the FBI was trying to get back. Um, if that leak feels pretty authentic to me, there've been a lot of leaks that really were just sort of like, um, conjecture and, um, um, speculation masquerading as like um you know inside sources or law enforcement sources say but this one feels like someone you know went straight to the post to get this out there um i you know i feel like i've been talking about this all week i wrote this uh the wednesday Jew file which we made available to everybody which went kind of crazy viral for a while um i can talk more about that in a second but um and then we talk about it on the dispatch podcast and and it just feels like it's been the only thing people have been talking about um i'm just uh, i'm basically embarrassed for the country um i'm embarrassed for republicans in particular um and even some of my conservative friends um because i you know I feel I have I, I can't remember a time I, I felt more remnanty than one watching all of this stuff. Um, you know, I get being first of all I, I I strongly suspect that Garland was warranted in 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 greenlighting this, um, but even if you are as a lot of my friends are um, on a more sort of anti FBI anti DOJ um, page than I am. Um, I, I get the, you know, the outrage, I get the lack of trust and believing that the FBI did something very, very bad here. Um, I'm still open to the idea that this was a massive screw up. I don't think it was, uh, I don't, I, I would be very surprised if there was real, you know, sort of criminal or partisan intent behind it um i just don't think garland given his positioning over the last 2 years on all of this stuff um does something that would you know ruin his reputation for the rest of his life deliberately so you know you can you can make a lot of mistakes that can hurt your reputation you know uh, by accident, in effect, by just sort of being in a bubble, getting bad advice, getting caught up in the moment, and all of that, and um, I think that's still possible. He could also have been relying on bad information. You know, I think that's still possible. But yeah, I just think he's just a really super unlikely guy to cast as the mustache twirling, you know, partisan villain. He's not Sid Blumenthal, right? You know, he's not he's not Steve Bannon. He's a responsible former federal judge that was. You know, widely respected by conservatives as like the most um, reasonable uh, guy, and I think it was the Clinton or Obama Justice Departments. You know, before he went on the bench, he's just not a um, he's not a firebrand, and so it's entirely possible, as Sarah was saying yesterday, that because he doesn't think in political terms, he doesn't think in political terms, right? And his political radar may be just so bad that he doesn't get that what he was doing was a mistake. So I think that's possible. That's not my, that's not how I would bet. My bet is, is that he did this for wholly justifiable reasons, Um, but we'll see. The reason why I'm so just unbelievably embarrassed is um, the idea of, of, of it's, it's like a checklist. I should have written them all down. You know, uh the one that I, I find the most pathetic and weird is this idea that again, I don't agree that this was necessarily or and it's certainly not obviously an evil and bad overstep by the Justice Department, but let's say it is. It's this idea that's all over the place that because the Justice Department did this, we have to elect Donald Trump. Right? I just I cannot get my head to see the connective tissue between saying what they're doing searching donald trump's home was wrong and it was outrageous again i don't agree with that but i can understand people who think it was wrong and outrageous i just don't understand why that means we all have to vote for um you know, what, what is the, walk me, show me your math, you know, walk me through the steps that lead from one thing to the other thing. You know, the, the Mike Huckabee position, um, is that this was so outrageous and so grotesque that, um, we should all just agree that Donald Trump will be the candidate in 2024, but essentially by acclamation and not even have you know, a debate about it or primaries or anything. He's just, you know, he should just be, um, you know, by in effect, by voice vote named the nominee, because according to Huckabee, he's the only guy qualified to root out this corruption at the FBI and all that. Oh, no, just everything about that is so, so mind bogglingly stupid. I mean, just every single, I mean, it's, it's a. Friggin' disco ball of jackassery. I mean, reflecting stupidity in every single direction. First of all, if it were true that he's the only guy powerful enough to get rid of corruption in the FBI, how come he didn't do it for four years as president? How come, you know, he was, you know, talked out of doing all sorts of things by, you know, his Justice Department, his appointees? um you know he put judges on the court that didn't do what he wanted them to do including try to steal the election you know in all of those you know court cases after um he lost uh questioning the outcome of the election one trump appointed judge after another went the other way against him he virtually he was told his entire justice department you know leadership would resign um he proved remarkably ineffectual at getting, at rooting out the deep state. Um, um, Moreover, like, even if he was the right guy to root out the deep state and all that kind of stuff, why does the FBI raiding his home somehow obviate the need to have primaries? or make it sort of illegitimate to consider somebody else's candidacy for the presidency. I mean, it is just such a unbelievable kind of false idea, stolen base thing to sort of butger, uh to, to sort of bully and badger um, Republicans into rallying around this guy because he's supposedly a, this victim martyr. And You know, another thing that's so embarrassing about this is how almost instantaneous, I mean, almost instantaneously, so many people ruled out any possibility that the search was justified. You know, they like even forget for legitimate, you know, civic reasons that they might want to sort of wait and see, Um, even for cynical political reasons. You'd think some of these people would would want to wait and see because it could turn out that it was justified, and you're going to be left looking pretty ridiculous if you're screaming bloody murder about it when it turns out that it was entirely warranted. I mean, I'm and but no, so few people did that. It was, I mean, Chuck Schumer did it, you know, and but Chuck Schumer is not the kind of guy I'm talking about here. Um, it is so. Weird to me, just so fundamentally strange, um, that at every turn, people give Trump this bizarre benefit of the doubt that he couldn't have invited these problems upon himself. I mean, there is there's is, there's been no political figure in our lifetimes, arguably in American history who invites more trouble upon himself and then everyone says oh look he's a victim of the trouble he was he invited himself upon himself it is just so weird and i, and I think you know psychologically a, a lot of this has to do with the fact that he is such an un- unbelievably flawed person that you know it's people have to sort of overcompensate for his flaws in a weird way it's sort of like you know i've known parents who had, you know, real screw ups as kids and they would get crazy defensive, um, and go, f- you know, not just sort of defensive, but, you know, get to the point of saying their kid could do no wrong, right? they they would get into this weird, um, sort of denial mode. Um, and I kind of feel like the way about Trump, I think that at some level people understand what an incompetent moron the guy is. Um. But they can't, they they can't bring that into the, the, the light of their conscious thought, never mind their conscious speech. And so they twist themselves into these bizarre pretzels. And it'd be one thing if everyone was just sort of screaming about how, you know, cat piss tastes like lemonade or vests have no sleeves, that would be like fine. But the way they're lashing out and overcompensating in defense of Trump is running down the united states of america in profound ways um you know and this is what i wrote about in the the sort of stem winder of a g file on wednesday all this talk about banana republic stuff and about how the regime is corrupt um i understand that the average schmo on twitter doesn't know you know what a banana republic is or what um um what the technical meaning of the word regime is or how it is properly used. I was just talking to my wife about 10 minutes ago because she hadn't read the G file and she's reading it, you know, um, you know, and I was making the point that in, I made the point in the G file that a regime is a term for a, for a, a system of government, not an administration, not, um, you know, a specific leader, but the form and system of government of a given country. And, um, and my wife was saying, you know, when she was working at the UN, she was Nikki Haley's speechwriter at the UN, they reserve the word regime specifically for corrupt or authoritarian countries. And I got no problem with that. That's, you know, that's, that's correct in the sense that colloquially Well, let me put this way technically regime means a system of government but colloquially and diplomatically we reserve the use of the word regime to have a a pejorative connotation and you know either either that it's corrupt or that it's uh undemocratic and none of that detracts from my point which is that Talking about the American, the corrupt American regime, as Ron DeSantis and Marco Rubio and all these other people are doing, um, you know, every five minutes, you know, Steve Bannon is talking about the Biden regime and all of this nonsense. Um, there is no Biden regime, right? There's the Biden administration, there's the Biden presidency, but the regime is the Constitution of the United States. The the regime is our constitutional order. All of our elected officials swear loyalty and allegiance to a piece of paper, the Constitution. Other regimes, you swear loyalty to a person. Um, that's the sort of the difference between you know in, impersonal versus personal forms of, of political power. We don't have a monarchy. In a monarchy, everyone's loyal to a person. And yeah, you can get weird intellectual theories and philosophical theories about how the person and the office overlap. And that's certainly true with the presidency. You know, the the person of the president is also the instantiated presidency in the United States. That's fine. But the president of the United States isn't the ruler of the United States. He's the chief executive of one branch of three branches of the federal government. And we have lots of other government in this country. And when people start talking about the corrupt regime, again, I know that they don't understand, at least I know that the, the sort of normal people who are parroting this BS, um, don't necessarily understand what they're saying. But when you have, um, you know, serious, you know, high level politicians, you have writers, um, who, are supposed to be knowledgeable about this kind of thing. You know, the Claremont crowd uses the word, throws the word regime around um, recklessly all the time. I mean, just to give you a sense of where I'm coming from, um, one of the formative debates of my 20s was when the, um, when First Things, and this is back when First Things was um, a bit of a different kind of magazine, um in a sort of like the Catholic commentary magazine it was a very um you know very serious intellectual journal and um they ran an editorial in the wake i believe of the casey decision basically questioning the legitimacy of a regime of the united states of america for being able to um tolerate abortion on the scale that we do in the United States. And I get the, the passion and the reasoning behind committed pro-lifers asking that kind of question, but it was considered so, um, radical in the egghead circles that I sort of, you know, had my nose up against the glass, um, watching and trying to emulate that it sparked an enormous debate and controversy and symposia and, and, um, and resignations from the board of first things. I think, uh, um, B. Himmelfarb uh, uh, resigned and she might not have been the only one. I just, she's the only name I can remember just, just for even raising the legitimacy of the regime was considered so beyond the pale. And now you have all over the place, these jabbering bandersnatches, just, just freelancing bullshittery about you know, the legitimacy of the American regime. The legitimacy of the American regime is what you're literally meaning by that is the legitimacy of the constitutional order, the separation of powers, the, 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 the very nature of our system of government as laid out in the Federalist Papers. That's the regime. And the idea that somehow we are a banana republic or an, or, or an authoritarian system because the attorney general agonized over a search of a former president's home, got a warrant to do so. You know, In other words, one branch of the federal government asked permission from another branch of the federal government to do this very specific thing as laid out on paper. Um, and you have, have people think that this is proof we've become a banana republic when it's that very kind of procedure that makes us not a banana republic, that makes us not an authoritarian lawless regime. And, you know, taken seriously, if you actually believe that the, um, um that Nobody is above the law. That we don't have different standards for powerful people than for normal people. Then refusing to investigate or send a search crew um, with a warrant to get this stuff because Trump was too powerful or um, or it was he was too politically radioactive um, to to do it then that would make us more like a banana Republic where certain people just live outside the normal rules because they're, you know, they're, their own, you know, in effect, sort of political bosses or warlords or whatever. And I just don't get how so many people can be so irresponsible about how they talk about this stuff when, um, it has real world consequences. And, um, I do want to like point out one thing I, I, actually, I should, I'm changing gears a little bit here because I just, you, you can read the G file. I'll be in the show notes. Um, it's called yearning for banana Republic. It's gotten a lot of attention, which is, I guess, nice, but, um, um, I want to stay on this, but switch gears slightly, uh. I get asked about this every now and then, like, why do I keep bringing up things like the editor's podcast at National Review or Andy McCarthy and all of that? And, you know, there, sometimes people say, why do you beat up on them so much? And I want to be very clear. I hope I don't seem like I'm beating up on them, you know, uh, at all. Because they're friends. Um, The reason I talk about them so much is the same reason I talk about like the commentary podcast a lot. These are the things that I actually listen to or read. So they're in my head. They're the things as I'm sort of sitting here awkwardly yammering, um, that are fresh in my mind that I engage with. Um, I don't engage with a lot of, uh, other people because I'm not reading them unless there's a reason for me to be reading them. But like, I, I read Andy McCarthy all the time. I read national review. I listen to the editor's podcast. I listen. I, you know, I, I, I'm a big commentary guy. Um, and so this is just sort of the this is the stuff that's laying around in my head that i can draw on and um much the same way i reference you know the remnant podcast i did earlier in the week or the g file i did um i suppose if i was doing more professional show prep i would go read a bunch of stuff i really really disagree with and yammer about that but i just that's not the way i normally do things maybe i should so I mean, i'm 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 open to suggestion on this um but so andy mccarthy has this theory that he's holding to um at least he was holding to as of um when did he post this in the corner he posted this in the corner wow at 1 26 a.m this morning um about the merrick garland uh press conference the announcement and uh there's a lot in there i think is v- a lot of points very well taken that i probably agree with him on a bunch um of it um but he says in point 6 of this um how many points does he have i guess it's 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 long anyway in point 6 he says uh Garland's preening defense of Justice Department lawyers and FBI agents is touching, but misleading. We have a two-tiered justice system which is utterly biased against Trump supporters while coddling progressives. Garland's claptrap about how even-handed law enforcement is on his watch is laughable. But understand, by and large, Americans who are angry about politicized federal law enforcement are not angry at lying prosecutors and FBI agents. They are angry at just, at the Justice Department and FBI leadership. They are angry at Garland and FBI Director Christopher Wray, who make policy, not at the men and women who investigate the cases. Garland is lamely intim- intimating that harsh criticism of him and the Biden administration is actually an attack on federal law enforcement writ large. It's a cheap rhetorical trick, and it's not fooling anyone. Now, again, I love Andy. I rely on Andy for all sorts of things. You should listen to the McCarthy Report podcast. You should read him. I don't always agree with him, but I find him incredibly useful and he's one of the sweetest, nicest, smartest guys I know. I completely disagree with him here. I mean, like really profoundly disagree with him. Um, It is now becoming evidently clear that this shooter in Cincinnati was fooled by all of this. And he went to go shoot a bunch of field agents in Cincinnati, not the FBI leadership, not the DOJ leadership, not Garland or Christopher Ray, but the rank and file people that, that Andy is arguing, uh, nobody is mad at. And I just don't think that's true. You have Newt Gingrich who has lost his freaking mind in recent years. I mean, some people, some people will say he was always crazy. And there's a certain truth to that. He was always eccentric. He was always, um, you know, like, Completely bought in on his own world historic genius. I, that's true, but he is now just grotesquely irresponsible. And he's describing. F, he says he's writing that we should view FBI agents as if they're like wolves, who are you know at you know uh, at war with the you know who are trying to dis- devour the American people. You have Steve Bannon out there um, saying the FBI is the American Gestapo. Um, you have all sorts of people talking about the FBI and the DOJ as institutions from the low ranking people all the way up to the top as enemies of the people. And at least one guy, it now seems, um, I just, according to the latest reporting I read just before we started, um, this guy deliberately went to go kill people at the FBI because of the, the criticisms of the FBI that we're hearing. All of this civil war talk is not aimed at simply um, Merrick Garland and Christopher Ray. It's aimed at whole institutions and really, frankly, the legitimacy of the US government. And I think it's profoundly um, dangerous and stupid um, to, for people like Gingrich and Rubio and Bannon, and all these people to talk this way. I mean, for Bannon, I don't know that it's stupid because I think he's evil and he is deliberately fomenting this stuff. Um, You know, apparently I was, I heard on NPR this morning that Bannon was talking about how he thinks it's entirely possible that um, that the deep state and the FBI are plotting to assassinate Donald Trump. I mean, it's just, it's so wildly irresponsible and um, I get Andy's point. I'm not saying Andy's irresponsible or stupid or any of that kind of stuff. I'm saying that I just think he's wrong on this one point, and um, um, and and he's not even entirely wrong on the point. I do think that there is a two tiered approach from this Justice Department. I do think that like the failure to do more about Hunter Biden and all that kind of stuff is a major political problem for the FBI and the DOJ. Hunter Biden's clearly corrupt. He's clearly done things that if he were the son of a Republican president, um, we would would be seeing something different here. I don't think that like, you know, there's a polling out that says like something like 12% of Republicans think January 6th should be investigated, but something like 86% of Republicans think Hunter Biden should be investigated. Um, You know, get your priorities straight. But I, I agree with Andy that the way the FBI has handled things and the DOJ has handled things over these years, going back to Comey and the Crossfire Hurricane stuff, which was all shot through with screw-ups, there's ample reason for mistrust. There's ample ample reason for um, not believing uh, the leadership of these organizations when they say things or taking it at face value. I I have no quarrel with that argument. I might uh, quarrel with the intensity with which some people hold, but, uh, the basic point I think is absolutely right. But I don't think you can say, you can, you know, reassure yourself by saying, um, oh, all of this talk about Gestapo and wolves and planting evidence and assassinating the president, um, uh, that all of this stuff is really just uh, well-grounded and sincere criticisms of Merrick Garland and Christopher Wray. Um, then that nobody is, nobody takes any of that as criticism of rank and file FBI agents or line prosecutors. I just don't think that's true. And like, if you listen to, to, to Donald Trump and his rhetoric, it's, it's not what he's saying. Um, he's saying, you know, it's the deep state and it's the fake news and it's radical left-wing George Soros, prosecutors, um, all working together to, you know, undermine me, you know, woe is me. I'm a martyr, all that kind of stuff. That stuff has consequences. And, you know, the Cincinnati incident, I'm hoping it's a one-off. Um, but it's not at all inconceivable that by the time I, you know, stop recording here and check what's happened in the news and turn off the you know, the, the, I turned back on my notifications because I turn them off when I'm doing this. Um, uh, cause I just can't stand all the text from Steve. Um, uh, it's entirely possible. We'll find out there were more shootings at FBI offices, right? It, it, because people are getting worked up in ways that are really just profoundly dangerous. And again, it doesn't, It it kind of drives me crazy that we have to have shootings for people to believe that certain rhetoric is dangerous or irresponsible. Um, You can, you can come well short of inspiring bloody violence and still be doing damage to this country. And the people out there who are talking about how this is an entirely corrupt regime, um, you know, echoing, Trump's talking points and all of this stuff about how we're a third world country and a corrupt country and a banana Republic and the regime, you know, needs to go and all that kind of stuff that has consequences. It has dangerous consequences. Even if we don't have a civil war, even if we don't have violence, Um, I just find it all like just really, really depressing how stupid, um, The sort of elected class of the republican party has become in all this how convinced it's become that uh, spewing infuriating nonsense is smart politics um it's just it's really profoundly depressing to me um oh one last point just because i'm getting a lot of email about it um about that about the banana republic g file thing i i screwed up i made a mistake but it's not the mistake that people think it is. Um, I um, used the expression about Donald Trump having free reign and I spelt it R-E-I-G-N as in like a king's reign rather than R-E-I-N, which is like a horse reign. And a zillion people have pointed out to me that um, the correct phrase is uh, free reign as in uh, free reign with a horse, not free reign as in like a king. I knew that, um, where I screwed up was I was, the original language had this, uh, play on that where I made a joke about how it's not the, you know, I I know it's the horse thing, but you know, reign is sort of what these people want Trump to do because they want him to be a king. Um, and, at the last minute before sending it off, I fixed some other stuff in that paragraph and I cut that part out and I didn't put anything back in and I left it as rain. So uh, I appreciate the, the the constructive criticism, but um, there is a certain poetry to it being free rain instead of free rain. Uh, but the, it's not that I didn't know that, I just made a mistake. Where I, I did screw up um, and we had to post a correction on it was I got my Latin American dictators wrong And I kind of combined to, um, and I referred to Manuel, um, uh, Ortega, which was a conflation of Manuel Noriega and Daniel Ortega. Um, but, uh, anyway, be that as it may. Yeah. So, oh, this point about, um, being and saying stupid stuff is smart politics. People think it's smart politics. Uh, you really should go back and read kevin williamson's tuesday newsletter um where he goes pretty deep into this where basically the the market signal that trump set the gop um has convinced a whole bunch of people that populist populist boob bait and red meat stuff is smart politics and what they seem to have missed is that it's actually not been particularly good for the GOP. Um, You know, Trump was the first president, I think, since Hoover to lose the presidency, the House and the Senate. Um, It definitely cost, you know, he definitely explicitly cost Republicans the Senate in 2020 because it was those two Georgia seats that made um, it a 50-50 Senate. um, And the data on that has just been simply, you know, poured over with a uh, was something that you pour over very closely, um, looking glass, a monocle microscope, um, fine tooth comb. Um, and it's clear that if Trump hadn't screwed around in Georgia, uh, the GOP wouldn't have lost those two seats. And, um, you also just look at, you know, what's happened at OAN network, which I think is probably circling the bowl as we speak. Um, you look at what happened to Rudy Giuliani. I mean, you can go down a long list, um, of things of people thinking that, uh, being a jackass, uh, was the way to climb the ladder when really it was a way to fall off the ladder, both for institutions and individuals. And, um, I think it's, it's something I, you know, I, I wish there was a way to sort of convey that point to more people because I, I see it on an individual basis with a lot of young, talented people who are misreading the tea leaves and they think that, um, making a bet on sort of integrity, uh, is, a, is, is stupid and that you can get further ahead by, um, by joining the, 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 the jackassery, um. And I understand why it might seem that way, because there are a bunch of, you know, people who skipped a lot of rungs on the ladder in the last five years by leaning into this stuff. Um, I mean, you just look at, you know, half the recent hires at, you know, at Fox um, or the various, you know, sort of legal and pundit types from the, the, the Trump era who would never be as, you know, would never be household names were it not for them, you know, buying into the strategy. But, you know, there's a lot of, there are a lot more examples of people's careers being permanently destroyed or permanently damaged by buying into this kind of nonsense stuff. You know, um, um you just look at, you know, I don't know, Milo Yiannopoulos, uh, for all I know, Milo was a, you know, I knew people who really liked him 10 years ago and told me that, Oh, you should meet him. He's really smart. He knows a lot of things, blah, 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 super charming, you know, and he gets this, that, or the other thing. I never really bought it, but then, um, he became so horrishly addicted to fame and attention and controversy that it ended up destroying him. And I know he's trying to mount some sort of comeback or whatever but you know that it's he's he's it's never going to work for him um not at the level that he wants and i i distinctly remember at one point i was criticizing him for people who don't know he's this british gay although now he claims he's not gay um uh he's still super gay <laughs> um uh um he's this british guy who worked for breitbart who um claimed um who wrote, you know, or allowed someone to write in his name um, or with his byline, um, you know, these defenses of the alt right, and and he was one of these sort of, you know, get everybody to look at me guys. And um, I remember I had criticized them, and he had this response to me. I think it was on Twitter that he thought was just this unbelievably devastating rejoinder where he said this is the real reason uh, Jonah Goldberg doesn't like me and it was a chart it was a screen capture of a chart from Google Trends showing how much more often people searched for his name or mentioned his name than mentioned mine and it always stuck with me because I thought it was such a it provided such a fantastic insight into how First of all, how other people think, but more importantly, how other people think everybody else thinks too, right? I mean, this is one of these lessons over the last few years that is, I I think, really valuable if you're open-minded to it, which is that if um, if you present people with the same facts and evidence, there's just simply no reason to expect that they're all going to process it the same way. Uh, you know, there are people who can literally watch the assault on the Capitol and the cops getting beaten with flagpoles, um, of American flags, you know, being beaten with flagpoles and people chanting, hang like Pence and say, I just don't see what the big deal is. Or, um, um, that doesn't mean that's not antifa or, you know, or, or the, the image is too blurry. You can't tell me there was violence. I mean, I've heard all of these things from people. I've heard these things from, you know, I've lots of friends who have real abiding problems with their own parents because their parents are more locked into the sort of crazy Trump narratives than, um, anybody else. And it's dividing families. And it's amazing how, you know, you think, you understand certainly people in your own family and they just process stuff differently. And so of course, you know, like in a attention-seeking horror like Milo, he just assumes that I must be one too. And uh, I am not. <laughs> um, and uh, there are also, it's always interesting when when people reveal how they, um, they think you must share the same kind of motivations as they do. Um, anyway, that's why it always sort of stuck out at me. But um, Kevin's point, you know, is i think a very very valuable one is that that what we've seen in the last five years is an enormous number of people operating on the wrong theory about how to advance their careers and how to you know do smart politics and it will be um interesting to see when the snapback realization comes and people recognize that um you know nominating insane people like you know what's her name Kelly Lake in Arizona or this Doug Mastriano guy um it's not smart politics you know i mean doing doing what the hard hardest core crazy people on the base of the party want um and what talk radio um, types want, uh, is not smart politics. Everyone needs to sort of stop getting reaffirmed by their own bubbles. And maybe look, maybe my, I'm, I have my own bubble, except the thing is, is like, I've made peace with the fact that I'm in the remnant. I've made peace that the whole business model of the dispatch, which I think is a very good business and it's a very good business model. But, you know, if you just work from the assumption that, that, Let's just say that the current division of passions and psychology um, is going to stick around for a very long time for the rest of my, say, professional life. Um, that means that somewhere between sixty and eighty percent of people on the right are going to continue to be um, either unhinged or persuaded by the unhinged, or un, or sympathetic to the unhinged, um, and And that means that somewhere between 20 and 40% of the right isn't going to be. And it also means that there's going to be some significant portion of reasonable people on the center and the center left who want to have reasonable conversations with people on the center, right? Um, that's our market, right? And I've made peace with the fact that like, I am not going to be, um, super influential, uh, in the Republican party anytime soon or ever. And I don't, I just really couldn't give a rat's ass. It was never sort of my goal. I never had the sort of approach to this stuff that people like, you know, my friend Bill Crystal had, which is that they wanted to be players in the thing. I am very happy hanging out with my dogs, my family, um, and uh, my friends and doing the work that I enjoy doing. And if it has purchase, great, if it doesn't, okay that's fine. Um, but there's this, there's a whole bunch of people out there who have convinced themselves that if they don't get, um, if they're not trending on Twitter, if they're not creating, making people angry and getting people freaked out, um, or launching controversy or owning the libs or making themselves part of the story, um, then they're doing something wrong then they're making a mistake. And I, I think that, um, um, I think they're wrong. I think that, that, that at the end of the day, doubling down and, and, and investing in honesty and integrity will pay off. Um, and if it doesn't pay off in the, in the marketplace, so be it. That's not where you're supposed to be looking. That's not where you're supposed to look for the payoff from integrity and honesty. Um, it's nice when the market ratifies it. And I think it often does, at least in journalism. Um, um, but if you think everything is just a performance, everything is just a show. Um, and therefore, if you're not on stage, you're failing, uh, that's, that's a business model that is going to work out badly for all but a tiny, tiny fraction of people who get their own cable shows um, or who manage to stay in the limelight for very long periods of time. Um, And and if you think the only way you can stay in the limelight is by, you know, spreading BS and all of that, uh, you either have to, like, be really, really good at it um, um, and you have to be perfectly comfortable with the fact that you're going to get a reputation among people paying attention for being an unserious person. And, um, I just, find it amazing how many people are perfectly comfortable doing that. Um, and I, I, I sometimes really wonder who is deluding themselves and doesn't see that they're getting that reputation and who, um, just doesn't care because it's the nature of the grift. Um, what else? Oh, you know, one other thing I've been meaning to talk about for a while. Um, so there's this theory going back to the Trump stuff, right? There's this theory that, um, this was really, uh, the, the classified document thing was a pretext, um, for actually finding Capitol riot stuff or January 6th stuff. And, um, and he still makes that argument. A bunch of people, a bunch of people I, I know and respect make that argument. Um, and it's speculation, obviously, because we don't know. And you know, the smart people making that argument frame it as such. They say th- they say, here's my theory, right? And all that kind of stuff. So um I don't I don't think it's entirely implausible. Um, I don't think it's irrational argument. Um, I do think though. Uh it's unlikely for the reasons that um David uh French laid out in the advisory opinions podcast, insofar as unless you know for sure that you're gonna find the stuff that you're that that you're doing this pretextual raid for, um, it's just an enormous risk, right? It's just a crazy enormous risk you're, you're going to try and pers- you, it, it requires buy-in from all sorts of layers of the justice department that I just, that you have to be sure you're never going to leak. Um, and you have to be able to convince a judge of both the pretextual ground you know, above both the stated reasons you want the search warrant, but also maybe even wink, wink, uh, the real reasons you want it. And I, I just, I'm, I am skeptical that that's what actually happened. Um, I'm skeptical that Merrick Garland would, would take a flyer like that. Um, but look, I don't know the justice department nearly as well as, as Andy does. And some of these other people do. So maybe I'm wrong about that. But the thing I wanted to talk about is like, and maybe it's because I've, you know, I'm, I'm working my way through this, uh, book about, uh, Julius Caesar, uh, Adrian Goldworthy, the guy who writes it, he makes this point several times that, you have to be careful about working from the position that Julius Caesar knew he was going to be Julius Caesar, right? You know, you have to, there are plenty of moments in his life where no one thought he was destined for greatness, where he didn't really stand out as a sort of special, you know, oh, that guy's going somewhere. Um, can't be on the wrong side of him. There were plenty of times where he could have died, you know, of this, that, or the other thing, he could have been killed. Uh, he could have made a bad political decision and, and, and lived his life in obscurity. It's because, and the, the, re- the reason he's saying this is that there is a tendency among historians and among human beings generally to assume the characters in a story of the past knew who they were in that story all the way through. And I think we, there's something like that, that happens a lot in, in politics and punditry where, and maybe it's, maybe I see it all over the place because I, I'm, I I see things sort of through this prism myself and I have to guard against it. Um, you know, in a movie or a TV show, we know like when, I don't know, uh, you know, Jason Statham, or whatever that guy straight Statham—I can't remember his name—the guy from the the uh, the British guy from all the the the—it's the, the same movie, the 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 courier. I can't what, what is it called anyway? The messenger. The guy who just drives the Audi all the time, or like forget it because I'm completely brain farting on um the guy's name and the name of the movies. Um, in the Fast and Furious movies, right? We know. Particularly if it's 15 minutes into the movie, if they're revving up the engine to to jump from one rooftop to another in a car, we know they're going to make it, right? Like it's, it's sort of like the characters know they're going to it's going to work. Um, when James Bond does something crazy or Jason Bourne does something crazy, um, you kind of it's sort of everyone is in on it that it's it's largely going to work because. It's a movie, and they wouldn't go through all the expense and time um, of setting up some scene where the thing isn't going to happen. Now, every now and then, a good director will play with the audience and and give you something unexpected, sort of like when um, Harrison Ford shoots the guy with the sword rather than getting into another fight in Indiana Jones. Although apparently that was less a directorial choice than a than the fact that Harrison Ford had, um, uncontrollably bad diarrhea and he just wanted to get, get off the scene. And it was so funny when he did it that they kept it. Because that's the, that's the version I've heard, but you get my point is that we know when you watch things like they're a movie, do you think that the, you come up with sort of narrative explanations for why Characters are doing certain things. And when you do that too often, you give short shrift, right? You don't give enough credit or attention to the fact that the person's actually making the decision don't know how the future is going to unfold. They don't know that something is going to work. Um, uh, And so the idea that somehow. Garland and the FBI filed for a warrant under these circumstances to take a flyer um, makes very little sense to me. Um, I could be wrong, again, but if they didn't know that they were gonna find this January 6th stuff that they um think is worth going through all of this stuff, then it seems to me uh, going on a fishing expedition to, on a, on a silly charge on a, on a, on a, on a trivial charge, but on a, 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 for want of a better term, unwarranted, um, reason, you know, just some document hunt, um, in the hopes of it unearthing some sort of silver bullet, you know, smoking gun thing, um, just seems really, really unlikely that someone would, would, would do that, Flying blind, and if they weren't flying blind, if they had a tip off that there was some smoking gun January's, you know, January six evidence um, to be had, maybe they would just write a warrant for that. Um, and uh, anyway, some of this conversation seems moot. I mean, I wouldn't have brought it up except um, in the context of this stuff. Except you know, um, Andy and a bunch of people are still making this argument even after these stories about it being nuclear stuff, um, have seen the light. And anyway, I just find it, I think it's moving it off of Trump for just a second. We do this all of the time. This is what conspiracy theories often involve is, is seeing the world as if it's a script. Cause when you're writing a script in fiction, you can connect dots really, really easily because you get to assign the motives to the characters and you get to, um, wave away with the stroke of a pen, all notions of, of, uh, statistical probability, you know, the, um, if you want the character to make the one in a million shot, they're going to make the one in a million shot. And they're going to act as if they knew they were going to make the one in a million shot. Um, if you, uh, if, you want the, the character to win the lottery or, uh, invest in frozen orange juice futures the right way. You can do it any way that you want because you get to determine the outcome. And so the whole point about being unsure or, uh, having imperfect knowledge or defying the odds is, uh, is kind of an afterthought. And that's what people who do conspiracy theories do is they, 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 they start with the event and then they reverse engineer the motivations and, um, the, uh, the actions that made the event possible. Um, they reverse engineer that narrative to fit it. And so, you know, the nine 11 being an inside job thing, um, you get to choose. It's like, it's a a choose-your-own-adventure-backwards-in-time kind of approach, where you get to pick the characters, you get to assign to them motivations, and you get to assign to them sort of m- metaphysically perfect awareness about how events are going to play out and, and perfect control over the unfolding of events. But if you actually... Th- know anything about how like life works or how politics works or how government works, the idea that you could have, um, a plot that would involve at minimum, let's say a thousand people. Right. I mean, I think that's a pretty conservative number to crash planes into, uh, the, you know, the plan was the Capitol or the white house, um, the world trade centers, um, And the idea that you could plan all of that out, get all the people positioned in the right place, um, um, actually blow up the buildings yourself, according to some of these theories, right? Because these were controlled demolitions, um, according to some of the truthers, you know, and don't, don't even begin to send me an email about building seven and, um, and no one's going to leak it. No one's going to say no, right? No one's going to say, I won't have anything to do with this plan. So like, my point is, is like, you'd have to, according to the way these conspiracy theories work, every new person they add to the conspiracy, they have to know in advance that that person is going to be all in for doing it, right? Because otherwise, there would be this huge trail of bodies of people who said, there's no way I'm doing this, I'm going to the press, I'm going to the inspector general, or whatever. And you'd have to kill those people, right? Um, so you, all, these kinds of conspiracy theory explanations for things always require the players knowing exactly what the result of every decision, every roll of the dice they take um, is going to yield success. And that's how the story un, unravels uh, or uh, unfolds in in their telling. And that's just not that's only it's only possible to create those theories by reverse engineering and playing the film backwards and saying oh look all of this was intentional all of this was deliberate they knew how they knew what they were doing and i think that we do this in real time about a lot of uh, in a lot of punditry and a lot of analysis where um we just assume the players in washington are like characters in a movie and that we know their motivation And that when they make a decision, everything unfolds from their decision rationally and predictably on their own terms. When in reality, you know, it's almost impossible to plan anything. And it's almost impossible to, um, control events once you've set a plan in motion. And, um, if our political leaders had anywhere near the kind of expertise and mastery of events that any of these conspiracy theories, um, implied, then they wouldn't be needing to do conspiracies because they could just use those skills about manipulating people and events to manipulate people and events with just like normal politics? Um, Why, you know, if if the Democrats in the deep state are so genius at everything, um, why do all of the elected leaders seem to be screwing up all the time in their day jobs? I mean, it's just such a weird way of looking at politics is to assume incredible competence and skill um, below the radar while um, clownish incompetence in front of our eyes. You would think that more people would want to be seen as perfectly competent. Um, But, you know, the, this is the great advantage of a lot of this sort of deep state stuff is that, and and Kevin and I talked about this the other day is, you know, when you have a made up enemy, um, you get to decide how much progress the enemy is, is making and how much progress you're making because you're making up the enemy, right? It's just purely of it's a, it's a literary narrative that you're constructing and pretending is real. Um, and that's what's sort of, sort of disgusting about like Steve Bannon talking about how he thinks the deep state is not above killing, assassinating Donald Trump. Um, you know, this means I mean, it's, it, we knew this would happen no matter what, if heaven forbid, Donald Trump is hit by a bus tomorrow, um, you know Bannon's going to claim that it was an assassination. Trump could die 20 years from now. Um, and, and, you know, Bannon probably won't be here 20 years from now. But um, the Bannon-type people will claim it was an assassination. Um, the the mindset that so much of this country, and it's, it's a problem on the left and the right, but it's so much worse on the right right now, that it assumes any events that we don't like or that are inconvenient to us, um, are the product of human will and malevolent uh, intent is just so pernicious. People don't know what they're doing or, or sometimes they do know what they're doing, but (laughs) they can't predict how well it will work. No one is all that competent. The regime isn't irredeemably corrupt. It, it, it's, it could be screwing up. It's probably screwing up. It screws up every day. Government screws up every day. Um, but there are very few people out there who are actually playing the role of villain that so many people want them to play. And I just, I guess that's the thing that I just get so fed up with. Is that so many people want to be living in dramatic times and to be part of some great dramatic story that's what the sort of nationalism stuff is. That's what communism always was. That's what revolutionary politics are always are. It is a way to find meaning on the cheap by being associated with some other grand cause. And, um, um, and the thing that's so tiresome about it now is that it's, it's sort of now just like a spectator sport, um, to, to play these kinds of psychological games and, um, and buy into this fundamentally unpatriotic and anti American way of thinking about our country. I and mean, it's amazing. I remember 10 years ago, was it 10 years ago? Um, what's his name? Uh, Jeff Daniels. Remember, there's that, that Aaron Sorkin show, uh, Newsroom, which was terrible. So terrible. And, I, and I, even, I didn't even think about this before. This is a great example of sort of what I'm getting at about think looking at the world this way. He deliberately set that show two years behind present day because he wanted Aaron Sorkin did, um, he wanted to make sure that he had perfected the one liners and, and the zingers, um, and the, you know, the jerk store called responses to contemporary politics so that he gave himself a padding of like two years so they could really get all of that stuff down. And, um, it's sort of a great example when I think about it of, Trying to see politics as um, a work of fiction where you can actually just sort of deny living in the moment um, um, and having to deal with doubt and contingency as it comes to you. But instead, you can rework things so that um, you have all your one liners seemingly ready in the moment. And that's how we should talk about politics. And that's how Sorkin did, you know, politics generally was it was his screaming from his couch at you idiots. This is not how politics is supposed to work. It's supposed to work, um, the way I write it. And that's what the American president was about and all that. Anyway, the opening episode of that really terrible show, um, newsroom, um, had this famous scene that a bunch of us um, back when I was, you know, a conservative it in very good standing, um, got very, very angry about where is it Jeff Daniels? Yeah, it's Jeff Daniels. He's on a panel, he's like some, you know, Dan Rather kind of journalist. And yeah, Jeff Daniels. And the moderator of somebody says, well, of course, this is the great, or somebody else on the panel says this is the greatest country in the world. And Daniels does this incredibly smug. Um, condescending, uh, sort of Vox explainer, extemporaneous Vox explainer about why we're not the best country in the world because look at our illiteracy rates on this and our child mortality rates on that and our blah 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 and our we don't have universal health care and yada yada yada. Very familiar tone um, of this from the sort of condescending left and a bunch of people, including me, on the right, really didn't like this sort of trying to make, uh, not trying to make loving your country seem like, um, something only the unwashed and unsophisticated, um, and the naive would do. And that, you know, serious people who understand the world understand that we kind of suck. It was the, was the attitude from Daniels and a lot of people on the left back then. And, um, it is just amazing to me now that the right is in some ways even more anti-american and down on america um not just on the same sorts of terms sort of it's 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 maybe not the same statistics but it's the same sort of judging the greatness of a country by various uh simple-minded materialistic criteria um, you know, you know, the stock market is underperforming. Um, inflation is high, therefore we're the worst, blah, 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 blah. Uh, there's a lot of this in that, this new video, which I have to admit is very well done. Um, that, that Trump has put out talking about what a crappy country America is now and how, you know, we're a stock and, and all that. And there's just an enormous number of people on the right who are buying into this stuff, But what makes it even uglier and stupider is this sort of Mike Huckabee kind of um, position, which says that the only thing that can make us a great country again, the only thing that can make us hopeful and proud of us as a country, as a regime, is if we put Donald Trump, of all people, back in office. And um, this idea that America is either terrible or great, depending upon whether one person, even if I thought Donald Trump were awesome, were just, you know, the cat's pajamas. It's still a grotesque idea. And one of the reasons I know I'm consistent on this is I've been making this point about virtually every ultra fan of every president we've had for the last 20 years. The regime isn't the president. It isn't a person. The country and its greatness, or lack thereof, are not dependent upon person who runs one branch of the federal government it, it's not about whether you know if if, if as i put it on, on wednesday you know if if your patriotism is contingent upon whether or not your preferred party is in power you're not patriotic right that's not what patriotism is about you know patriotism is supposed to be about the enduring and glorious reasons why, I shouldn't say glorious, because glorious is a misleading word. Um, it sounds a little bit too Roman, right? I mean, but the enduring reasons, large and very small, why you love your country. And if those reasons don't mean anything, um, or if they don't mean anything, if the Democrats are in power, or if the Republicans are in power, then they don't mean anything at all to you. Right, those are just simply like bullet points on a marketing, you know, press release. Um, either you love this country for what it is in, in an enduring way, everything from you know the you know, the, you know inherent decency of, of of the American people to um, you know the constitutional order to um, um, the fact that we refuse to have the metric system. I mean, you come up with your own list. Uh, but like, if you love this country, it shouldn't be contingent upon what happened in the last election. And you can be disappointed in what's happened in our politics. You can hate our politics and all these kinds of things. But there is now this unpatriotic anti-American fervor that absorbs so many people on the right. And it seems to be driven almost entirely by a cult of personality or a cult of anti-personality in terms of like, they hate Biden so much. Um, But that's not what conservatism is supposed to be about. It's not what patriotism is supposed to be about. And I just, I find this whole, you know, I know people get tired of me finger wagging and I get tired of finger wagging and I'd love to just sort of do normal punditry again. But this week has just been so depressing to see how sort of morally corrupted and warped our thinking has become on, on the most important, you know, issues that make America an exceptional nation. Um, And I was going to say the most important issues going on, but there are other important issues, you know, fighting, you know, figuring out what to do about China and Russia and Ukraine and, and inflation. These are all important issues, but the issues, those are issues that confront pretty much every significant nation to one extent or another. The issues that define us as an exceptional and, 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 and great nation is the stuff about, you know, the regime. It's the stuff about um, not letting a cult of personality, an obsession with an individual or your partisan hatreds seep into your understanding about what this country is about and twist it and distort it and um and that's what we're seeing all over the place right now and it's it's grim so anyway uh i know i ended on a grim note but i'm actually in a pretty chipper mood because the weather is awesome um i gotta write a G file don't know what that's going to be about it won't be about this stuff i know some people are starting to point out that like i'm i'm sort of um street testing or, or test driving um g file topics on this podcast. And I, I don't think I did that today. Um, though, you know, maybe I did, I just haven't figured it out what I'm gonna write about yet. So, uh, with that, uh, thanks everybody for listening again. I apologize if this was a weird one. Um, and, uh, I'll talk to you later. Human Torch was denied a bank loan.